I will work day in and day out. Wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Francesca Peacock, a writer, a journalist and author of a new book that has just been published, Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish. Welcome to the podcast, Francesca. Thank you so much, Will. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. It's great to have you on. Um, Now, the first question I'd like to ask is, what made you want to write this book in the first place? Yeah, I think it's such a good question. So I became really interested in a group of women who are a bit later than Margaret Cavendish, who is the subject of biography I've just written. And they're writing in the early 18th century. And they're kind of part of a wave of women writing, philosophical writing, mostly about their gardens. So this sounds like a weird little circuitous route into Margaret Cavendish, who is a female philosopher, scientist, and one of the earliest English female authors we have. Um, and I became very intrigued by this idea that publication for anyone in this period, in the early modern period, is a statement of intent. You're putting yourself on a public stage, a lot of people circulated work in manuscript. And I became obsessed by the fact that all of these women I were looking at who had maybe brave publication or were writing for manuscript circulation, they all had Margaret Cavendish uh, like as a kind of forerunner, whether they knew it or not, because often she wasn't that much read after she died. Uh, but I kind of became intrigued by her as a figure, and then I read more and more about her, and her life story is, I'm sure we'll get into it, just incredibly wild and it is worthy of so much more attention than she's been given. And this year is her 400th anniversary. It's also the 350th anniversary of her death and the 370th anniversary of her first book. So it felt like a perfect time to try and bring her back to a wider audience. So outside of just academia, um, I think she's a figure who who uh, is really deserving of a wide audience. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And uh, one of the people who's perhaps... Um is always quite stark in her critiques of Cavendish at times, was um, Virginia Woolf. Um, in, in terms of what Woolf wrote about Cavendish, how much do you think that that has coloured some more recent perceptions of her and perhaps not meant as many people have been reading Cavendish's work as perhaps they should? Yes, it's one of the first things I read about her in a book too. Uh, Room of One's Own is Virginia was very, very famous pair of lectures she gives to a couple of women's colleges in Cambridge. And it's all about a desire for female education, how important it is for women to have an income and a room of their own if they want to write. It's a great, great line. Uh, I'm, right, I'm speaking from my study now, so I'm very happy. <laughs> um, but it's, um, and she says in a brilliant, brilliant line that Margaret Cavendish was like a giant cucumber in the garden of women's literature that overgrown everything and like starved all the other roses of water. She also describes her as like an elf, uh, a quixotic elf with all the lines, and a giant bogey to scare clever girls with, which is an iconic line. And it's absolutely amazing. And I think because her descriptions are so witty, so fun, it becomes something that's tied to Margaret Cavendish. And you read that and you think, oh, do you know what? Virginia Woolf sounds incredibly right. <laughs> but then, so Virginia Woolf was writing in the 1920s. She goes on to carry on uh, with the common room. There's also another essay about Margaret Cavendish in that. And at this point, Virginia Woolf probably wouldn't have had access to much of Margaret Cavendish's work, only that which was available in editions and anthologies. And by the early 20th century, uh, that only included the most sparse and random of Margaret Cavendish's writings. So she's writing 1623 to 1673 and she writes about science, atomism, uh, whole new worlds and genres of things. But by the early 20th century, we only had her poems about fairies 
or her biography of her husband. So she becomes reduced to this kind of fae figure who is uh, a wife more than anything else. So it's not really surprising uh, what Virginia Woolf comes out with. Um, but there are some great lines. Um, and when I sold the book, my publisher managed to get one of those lines in the press release, which I thought was particularly really fun. To turn back to, to Cavendish's life, she was born in 1623, still uh, the reign of the first Stuart monarch, James I, born as uh, Margaret Lucas. Could you just set out for the listeners what kind of life she had early on, what kind of circumstances she was initially born into? Yeah, of course. So Margaret is born Margaret Lucas in 1623. We're not entirely sure when, in 1623. Um, one of those facts which is lost to history. But she's born in St John's Abbey in Colchester, which now sadly doesn't exist. They only have um, the gatehouse stores there, which was uh, a big country house, but built on the site of land that had been given to her family after the dissolution of the monasteries. And her family had managed to get it via political appointments and being close enough to the crown to be given quite a lot of land. They were wealthy, but they were not particularly aristocratic. So they had enough money, very, very comfortable, but they weren't one of the big families in Stuart, England. Uh, probably wouldn't have been courted into an aristocrat on the marriage market, for example. And she's the youngest daughter of a huge, huge family. And her father dies very soon after she's born. So all of her writing about her mother is, as her mother is a widow. And uh, her brothers, her eldest brother's actually illegitimate because her mother gave birth whilst her father was in exile because of a duel. It's all a bit of a murky story. And her elder sibling, many of them were married or her brothers would join the army. And so she has this childhood in a big house where she's kind of left to do what she wants. And what she does do is read. So she wouldn't have had a structured education like boys from that time. So grammar school educations, very Latinate educations, were something which was very much provided for for men and boys that's how you know Shakespeare John Donne all that stuff comes about but women not necessarily would have had that and it isn't until the end of Margaret's life where you start to get you know schools for gentlewomen being set up and a greater focus on female education even though there have been a lot of that for Renaissance women uh, very aristocratic Renaissance women were very highly literate uh, so she would have been very literate able to read but all of her education came from books or asking her elder brothers for little tidbits of facts and to explain things to her and she describes her childhood uh, and like hiding away in corners and writing in what she called her baby book, which really sadly has been lost to history. And so she lives there for the first, well, until her late teens, uh, at which point something rather dramatic happens. Should, should I talk about that now? Yes, oh, yes, yes. No, 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 absolutely. Uh, so she's born in 1623 and then by the end of the 1630s, very early 1640s, as everyone knows, the Civil War begins. And this is not just an abstract political battle. It is a very, very violent civil war ripping apart the structure of the country and families. And Margaret's family were very, very staunch royalists living in an area which was predominantly Puritan. Was that based off class divides? Probably definitely. And her, as a teenager, her house gets stormed by Puritan, uh, Puritan like mobs of marauding Puritans who come in. Like desecrate the family vaults, tear open the house, loot everything from the house. We're talking down from silverware to beds, everything goes. And her mother, her sister, and possibly Margaret herself. So one of the sources describes two young girls, the other one describes one. Margaret writes about it, but she's never entirely clear. She doesn't make it clear that she was there, even though that she writes about it. So it's very hard to pinpoint if she was there, but they were paraded through Colchester and taken to the local jail. So her teenage years were marked by 
the violence of the civil war, which only becomes greater and greater and kills a great number of her family members, and does see Margaret go off to join Henrietta Maria as a lady-in-waiting, initially in Oxford, after the court had moved there, once it had left uh, London, and then she goes into exile into France as a lady-in-waiting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what I think is really interesting that you bring out in the book, and, and, and you see a lot in um, other literature written about, this time is the key role that's often played by women during the English Civil War, Henrietta Maria, Dorothy Hazard, Elizabeth Lidburn, Mary Banks, etc. How much of an impact do you think the Civil War and the chaos that it caused had on changing the way that women were viewed in terms of politics and in terms of uh, society and, and in military terms as well? Yeah, so such a good question. So... I found this absolutely fascinating. So the third chapter in the book is called, I think it's She General Listeners, um, which was the title that Henrietta Maria gave herself in a letter and then was picked up by the popular press. So she was kind of always posited uh, on one side for the Unitarians and the Puritans as being this unnatural woman man who careered about on horseback trying to bring arms and ammunition down to the royalists. The royalists on the other side see it as kind of almost saintly. There's something very bizarre going on in the iconography here. It's uh, the image of a very, very powerful woman. And she was a huge part of the war effort. So um, overseas, there are the movement of a huge number of arms that had come over across the sea and had landed in the North St. England. She liaises with William Newcastle, who actually goes on to become Margaret Cavendish's husband. So this is a lovely early moment where they didn't know each other, but they're very connected in historical sources. Um, and overseas, then being brought back down to Oxford, uh, where they could be used, and she is a figure who is very much tied up with this image of the Royalist Army and does write letters directing things, disagreeing with her husband, quite an astute, uh, astute not battle-commanded, but battle-minded woman. Um, and she's only one figure amongst many, so once you open the lid on these stories, there are so many stories of women being very involved in civil war life. And um, so a very classic thing is, we now think of uh, war as being something which has definitely gone along gender divides, and there are many more books uh, that go into this in far better detail than mine does. Um, the idea that war is male is actually is quite modern. So in the early modern period, in the 17th century, a huge number of women would have followed armies into battle, be they as like washerwomen, stalwomen, people organising all of these things, all very often wives, girlfriends, ad whores. Prostitutes were very much a part of the army effort. And so there is always this continual band of women following these armies around. And it doesn't mean some horrific things happen. So in the book, I mentioned the Battle of Naseby, after which a lot of women were captured and they had like their faces marked for cause. So they were cut along the sides and not necessarily kill the workers in the first place. Uh, but the idea that women were part of the scene of battle life is, is, is very common in the early modern period. And we do have a couple of sources of women cross-dressing to fight in uh the battles to such an extent that at one point Charles I nearly writes but does not issue a proclamation against it. He writes it down, it appears in a couple of different sources um, and it never actually declares it and we can't work out why. Is it because he's too embarrassed to admit the sheer number of cross-dressing fighters or is it because it's not actually that great a problem at all uh, but he still feels uncomfortable by it or does he want to declare it but then fears that people will point out that his wife is actually, you know, 
perhaps going along the same lines. So it's it's a very interesting period. There's a huge degree of uh, mutability and change, and I think very very different to how we see war now, where it's, I mean, female officers are still quite a new thing in the British Army on like in combat roles. Uh, it's very much not the case in the seventeenth century, where things were more mixed and everything was happening. And another area in which women were very much involved in civil wars is obviously the siege. So if all the men go off to fight and they leave, and you leave your women and your daughters inside a big country house, what happens if the army on the other side comes along and says, leave, we're going to take this, we need it as a garrison? Uh, and so there are rules which were allowed, like kind of like, you know, gentleman's code, you could say, please leave now, they had 24 hours to leave. But if they refused then those women inside the house were no longer counted as civilians and were in fact competence. And um, armies could, you know, besiege them. And this happens a number and a number of times to the point where you have brilliant, brilliant stories of women kind of making their household their army and organising all of the stores, sending letters to the army outside being like, don't come in, we're, we're going to fight. Um, so it's really interesting. I found it like a fascinating insight into all of this. And I was able to write about it because Margaret Campbell later on in her life writes a play called Bell and Campo which is a brilliant play and it is about uh, a group of women setting up their own battalion fighting in the civil wars um, and they end up winning awards for the men who then revere them as goddesses so it's very much it's, it's not anachronistic to think about these problems uh, the women at the time were thinking about them as well mm -hmm, absolutely and I think it's interesting as well to think I mean you touch upon um, one of her plays there as well the degree of literature that is being produced at this time, the emergence of the printing press. How often do you think people in a, a daily aristocratic basis were engaging with writing, were writing poetry, were writing plays? And how much of a, a class divide do we see between the type of literature being produced in this period? Because, of course, there are a great many... Um, English Civil War pamphlets and early forms of newspapers that are being produced by the parliamentarian side, as well as the kind of um, poetry and um, plays and perhaps more romantic um, type work that's being produced by the uh, royalists as well. Yeah, so it's an incredibly literate age. I think we almost struggle to to kind of picture it. Um, it's an age where you know you could write a, a letter and it would have a poem in it, and it would just be copied out or be a poem that the person who's writing the letter wrote themselves and it wouldn't be you know somebody wrote that to me now I'd be like oh my god I got written a poem and it wasn't necessarily a super special thing it was a way of conveying information that's the manuscript culture which kind of precedes the outbreak of the civil war renaissance poetry culture is very 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 highly literate and incredibly poetic culture the civil war comes and we've had the printing press for ages in England since the 15th century but it kind of the civil war brings about this age of like rapid newspapers. So very quickly we have the Mercurius Britannicus and the Mercurius Rusticus and the Mercurius I'm gonna watch the pronunciation. I've just gotta do it now. It happens when you type it too much, yeah. I don't know if you know how to say it. Alicolus, the so these are all different ones and um on both the parliamentarian and the royalist side. And they would come out once a week, if not more, and they'd have all of the news for the whole week printed in either Oxford or London. Uh, with like each day broken down what had happened in Colchester, what had happened in Naseby, what had happened in Bridlington. And um, they're, they're propaganda. You cannot you cannot trust them. It's, it's, it's utterly verifiable historical sources. Uh, but they're written were brilliantly witty as well. Um, you know, at one point, big siege of Colchester, 
And the person writing in the newspaper at the time says, thank God the parliamentarians have managed to get windmills. How successful. And it's just like this little turn of phrase. You can tell the dripping with irony and the readers would have loved it, you know? Um, so incredibly, rapidly, incredibly print culture was a thing. Suddenly we had rapid newspapers being circulated around the country, everyone reading them and people were printing their own propaganda leaflets, as you say. So uh, there were endless, endless propaganda leaflets on both sides about, you know, the problems with the king, the problems with the queen, how she was, you know, Spanish Catholic plot, French Catholic plot, all of that stuff, all happening and all being read and written about rapidly. And that is quite a democratic form that was very much able to be read. And as the civil war goes on and on, and spoiler alert, parliamentarians win for a bit, well, they win eventually. Um, that's vastly oversimplified, but <laughs> that is the way that happened. Um, and during the protectorate, and whilst that whole period where after the king's death, you have this amazing surge of, and just before that as well, this amazing surge of like very low church religious, Quaker, dissenting pamphlets which were published with amazing rapidity, so prophecies, uh, loads of religious writing, and it's just like a huge, the statistics for how many books are published, books as a loose term, including pamphlets as well, goes up like a mushroom cloud. It is absolutely amazing to see. Um, so yeah, really interesting. And there definitely was a divide in a sense, because that was kind of a non-class divides, all of that stuff. But I do think it, I think it is generally a very, all of a sudden, very, very literate print culture which is really fascinating and is great uh, if you want to read these historical sources <laughs> no absolutely absolutely um now you mentioned uh, a moment ago margaret obviously going into exile with henrietta maria yeah. what happens then what 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 yeah. prompts that and, and what occurs while she's in exile because it's a very important period in her life isn't it it is so it's a brilliant story so age 20 she travels i think probably from london or perhaps from colchester they probably left colchester after having been seized and then stayed in london but it's very hard to find sources saying exactly where probably goes from london to oxford very dangerous journey technically really not allowed at the time uh, to travel to fight with the royalists and the fact that she was a woman wouldn't really have protected her she was traveling with her brother we think who was a royalist soldier so dangerous journey having to be done very much hoping not to be stopped, maybe down at night, uh, gets to Oxford. There's a whole court is in exile there uh, and spends her life there for a bit. She's uh, writes later in her place that she was Lady Bashful. She was too shy to talk to all of these courtiers. Um, lives there for a bit and Henrietta Maria is very heavily pregnant. They She then leaves Oxford because she, it's the war getting too close, makes her way further down south, ends up giving birth, perhaps in a di- ditch or perhaps under a bush. Everything's a bit chaotic. And... Um, but maybe goes into labour that does eventually give birth probably in a house um, and then has to hide afterwards having left the baby in the arms of someone else and all of her ladies in waiting hide in different places meet at the port and they get on a boat to go to France so the civil war has got such that Henrietta Maria really can't be captured because then that she will probably be killed and it would all be over so get in a boat very 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 terrifying journey the parliamentarian forces start bombarding them and things are hitting the boat and Henrietta Maria goes to the captain, if we're going to get captured, I'd rather you blow up the entire boat and kill us all than let me get captured. At which point, all of her, her ladies-in-waiting apparently vomit and scream, um, which, which I can believe. Uh, Margaret Cavendish is on that boat, and then they eventually get to France, uh, and Henry Attenborough is kind of like a wandering princess, looking really destitute, but her family is French, so they get taken in into the court in Paris, and then Paris Saint-Germain. And while she is there, 
uh, French court, Margaret Shyness, had not got any better because she couldn't speak any French. She's very young. She's very alone. She then gets dysentery. Everything's going incredibly badly wrong. And she's in court one day and a man turns up looking incredibly flamboyant and well-dressed and with a huge coach with loads of horses. And he turns up and gives the horses to the queen. And Margaret thinks, what's this man? He seems kind of flamboyant and attractive and sexy and like a dandy. And um, he is three decades older than her. He's been married once before. It's a disgraced royalist general, uh, royalist commander, William Newcastle, who had recently just lost Marston Moore. And they fall in love very, very quickly. And he writes out a love poem a day for about 72 days, I think. And she writes all of these poems back in hilariously chaotic handwriting, always blaming it on her pen, but it's not her pen. Her handwriting's just really bad. And they have this incredibly emotional very, very, very tender love affair to the point where there were rumours circulating that they'd already been married before they actually did eventually get married. Uh, they were too scared to ask the Queen for permission to marry because obviously Margaret was one of her ladies in waiting. Um, and so it is kind of a marriage for love in many ways. Uh, the letters are absolutely gorgeous. Margaret has to remind him that they can't have sex yet until they're married. Uh, they exchange miniatures and they she writes, Letters being like, do you have a plot against my health because you sent me your last letter so early? Or, uh, this is so early, I'm half asleep as I'm writing to you. Just an incredible degree of intimacy, and it feels so beautiful to get to read them. And yeah, they are married. Uh, yeah. Could you just give a bit of background as to, to who William is? Because his involvement in the Civil War is quite often on a cash basis, isn't it? He's providing quite a lot of money to the... To the, the yeah, he's such a fascinating figure. So he is William Newcastle, later becomes first Duke of Newcastle um, in the 1660s. And he is the grandson of Bess of Hardwick, so the woman who built Chatsworth, uh, well, directed the building of Chatsworth. So incredibly wealthy family, uh, very much involved in aristocratic life. He'd been married once before, had three daughters and two sons, and he uh, leaves his daughters. Uh, just after their mother has died in his, their big country house where they actually get sieged and they have to direct the whole thing. So it's a lovely little uh, cameo for them as well. But um, And he fights, he liaises with Henrietta Warrior, directs a lot of the Civil War fighting and does, uh, he is a, you know, Margaret writes his, his biography where she stresses how brilliant his Civil War, uh, like, role was but he does come into trouble after a disagreement with prince rupert at the battle of marston moor and goes into exile kind of in disgrace because the battle's gone so so bad um and yes so he does lose an absolutely extortionate amount of money through the civil wars through funding things through his assets being seized through his houses being destroyed um and it, it's a ridiculous figure but it is not necessarily out of place with how other royalists calculated their losses as well. Everyone lost a lot. Um, and also there's a degree of propaganda to uh, hyping up how much money you lost as well. Um, so it's hard to pinpoint. But then he later goes on. He His role in court life was always uh, looking after Charles II as kind of a figure who oversaw a lot of his education. Um, and he always thinks he will be better placed politically once Charles II comes to the throne, and unfortunately his, his hopes are slightly foiled, uh, there are other people who end up getting the jobs that he really would have liked, uh, which is why kind of being made a duke is kind of a consolation prize, which is a, a bizarre thing to say, but it is true. And um, that restoration, the restoration of Charles II, obviously William and Margaret return um, to London. 
what kind of expectations do you think that they both had in terms of, you touched upon it there, um, what kind of expectations do you think that they had as to what kind of role that they would play in the new court of the, the new king that restored Charles II? Yeah, so they've been in exile for an incredibly long time. Uh, William writes, I think I've been asleep 16 years. Um, and they are, are they, they go from Paris to The Hague and then eventually Antwerp end up living in Rubens, the artist's old house in Antwerp, and spend a lot of time there and very, very divorced from the political machinations, very much in debt, no money, hanging out with Thomas Hobbes and René Descartes. So it's kind of a, a sweet old group. Sounds like a fan friend gang to me. But they are over there, and then once the restoration happens, William actually leaves first. He's in such a, a desire to get a political appointment, such a desire to see London again, that he leaves Margaret as a security for his debt. It's quite sad that she's left there literally as a pawn. And he returns back, and once he gets there, everything is, you know, I think just kind of a bizarre pageant. Uh, so the king is crowned, Oliver Cromwell's body is dug up, decapitated head on the spike it's, it's an era of like political performance over substance and maybe that makes sense as the whole thing was a performance and then William had probably been hoping for a very very high up uh, political position type that Clarendon uh, did end up getting and William failed to probably because both the Marston Moor disaster and also had a bit of rep- reputation for being kind of um more of a dandy than a, than a serious thinker and for spending all of his money and enjoying the finer things in life. He's a patron of the arts on a very, very huge scale. They turn up and they do unfortunately get nothing and they are poorer than they ever have been even after the restoration. So all of his estates have been ransacked and killed, uh, like trees killed, everything dug up and uh, it's quite a moving inventory of their things where they didn't even have clean sheets at one point in one of their houses and uh, his son and his wife say we've left you behind some sheets and some plates and um, they can't really find it within themselves to even say thank you for that because it's such a change as to what they had expected. I think he'd expected to go back to things as normal and obviously that was really never going to be the way. But um, things that end up you know, eventually being restored, they have Bolsover Castle and Welbeck in Nottinghamshire, which are both gorgeous country houses. And they eventually manage to get things back on their feet and they kind of establish themselves as a restoration couple quite high up in society and eventually becoming duke and duchess but a huge caveat to that is despite uh william's position in society margaret was uh literally in all of the sources described as mad um and that comes because while she was in exile in 1653 she'd come over to london to try and get some of william's estates back um, which is something that the dependents of delinquents could do as it happens, Margaret's petition got denied because she'd married William, knowing that he was a royalist, quote-unquote, delinquent. Um, but she publishes her first book while she's in London, which is called Perms and Fancies, and it comes out in 1653. And it is a book of poetry about her life, about atoms, about a theory of Epicurean atomism. And it's absolutely amazing and radical, and she was such an early woman to put her name on the front cover page of, of a book of her own poetry, and it's not, it's not poetry about, you know, being a mother or it's not religious poetry. So it's incredibly radical. And the response was broadly that Margaret was better confined to Bedlam. So for the rest of her life, she has this kind of bizarre position in society where she's incredibly well known, but it's also thought of as, as a bit deranged. Mm-hmm. And it's when she returns to London during the Restoration that, of course, she pens The Blazing World. Yeah. Proto-novel that is perhaps her most famous work. 
why is the blazing world so important? Could you explain the significance of it? Yes. So it is absolutely amazing. And it's always a work which when people are like, oh, what should I read of Margaret Cavendish? And so I would say, go get the Penguin edition of The Blazing World and read it. It is absolutely amazing. So it comes out in 1666 and it is initially appended to one of her volumes of philosophy. So Margaret, after trying her hand at poetry, plays, quite a bit of prose, kind of really gets very interested in natural philosophy. And this is the age of the educated amateur. Uh, it's pre-Newtonian science, everything's up for grabs. Everyone's thinking, how does the world work? And some of Margaret's theories are going to sound a bit bizarre, but you have to think they are probably not any more bizarre than anything any more famous scientists were coming up with at the time. Just, you know, Descartes came up with a theory that everything in the world was made up of many different corpuscles, and nobody ever remembers that now, and nobody holds it against him. Um, but it is the age where everything was still very much being explored and explained. So uh, these crazy theories didn't sound crazy. They were all as plausible as each other for trying to puzzle out how the world worked. And she uh, writes all of these theories, becomes very interested in an idea of materialism, which is that um, different types of matter in the world could direct themselves. And um, it's, it's very fascinating. Um, but she writes many, many volumes of natural philosophy. And The Blazing World is initially appended to one of her volumes of natural philosophy that comes out in 1666. And it's a, it's a book of like quite fiery debate. Uh, she's arguing with the men of the Royal Society, which is the home of that male restoration scientific endeavor that was founded in 1660. She's arguing with them about uh, microscopes, about the way we perceive the world. And at the end, she has this book that opens with a young girl uh, gathering shells on a beach, gets kidnapped. As she gets kidnapped, God is so angry she's being kidnapped that he causes a tempest which pushes her uh, up to the North Pole. And in Margaret Cavendish's Blazing World, another world is connected to our own at the pole. And there she goes, pushes through like a little tunnel into a new world. And her kidnapper dies because it's too cold. And she is kept alive by the light of her beauty and her youth, which is a beautiful idea. And she enters this new world and she meets the emperor, gets made empress. And she, the emperor then rustling into the background. He becomes a very unimportant figure. And as empress, this young woman sets out trying to work out how the world works. And she has all of these anthropomorphic figures like lice men, bear men, wolf men, uh, satyrs, everything like that. And they are all scientists and philosophers working under her trying to puzzle out how the world works. So the Empress is quite clearly a version of Margaret Cavendish. And these men, for her, are kind of like the men of the Royal Society, only now they're doing her bidding rather than telling her what they think. She's engaging them in the debate. So it's a it's proto-novel, which is probably one of the earliest works of science fiction. It comes just after there's another one called The Man and the Moon, which is in 1638. But it's just the first work of science fiction to imagine a whole new world. Um, so it's like a world outside of our own. And it's, you know, parts of it sound spooky like parts of Gulliver's Travels, which comes 60 years later. Uh, making it such an interesting idea. Did John Swift read in Margaret Cavendish? Uh, sounds a bit like Philip Pullman's uh, Start Materials because it's all in the North Pole. And um, it's this amazing work of science fiction, which, despite sounding quite bizarre, has an amazingly propulsive plot, uh, all about scientific discovery, ends up even having a few moments quite sexy, it's got a lot of things going on. Um, it's absolutely amazing. And um, 
as an early work of science fiction, she brought a new genre into the world, but also as a work which explored how you could discuss scientific ideas within a fictional context is a fascinating idea. It goes very much against what the Medal of the Royal Society was saying at the time, how science had to be very prosaic and all written down very sensibly. Um, so it's kind of a riot of imagination and a riot of creativity. Um, and it's probably one of the least well-known but earliest works in science fiction in the world. Absolutely. How much of an impact do you think Margaret's writing at this time made on some of the other writers who were, and the other thinkers who were active at the time? Was she yeah. making a, a, a significant dent, would you say, or would you say that it was... Perhaps... So this is hard. Yeah, um, it's a very good question. And so historiography has for ages that she didn't really make that much difference. Um, Virginia Woolf says that she scribbled away and then all of her books moulder in public libraries. Uh, luckily, they don't now because archivists are great. Um, so there's mo no moulding going on. But um, it's definitely certain that she wasn't kind of revered as public intellectual, uh, not holy at least. But people were reading her works. And one of the areas we can really see her influence in is in her early work, Atomism, which is a theory which is uh, dealing with Epicurean ideas about how the world could all be boiled down into little atoms. And that is a theory which becomes quite atheistic at its root. If you think everything in the world boils down to atoms that move randomly and hit each other and uh, move without kind of an overarching force directing them, then you're kind of, to an early modern mind particularly, denying the role of God. And so a lot of men who had written about atomism prior to Margaret Cavendish in English uh, had always couched it in terms of... Um, and really diluted it in order to be able to play down the atheistic elements. She's one of the first people who do it in English who, who really engages with it and doesn't really care about the atheistic elements. So that's certainly somewhere where we can see her influence there. She was read, so we have uh, letters proving that she was read by quite a few scholars of the day, but often they would say, for example, they didn't believe that she had written it because she was a woman and thought it had instead been her husband. Or uh, people had read her poems and one declared her mad. So we can't really say that she was revered as an intellectual figure in her time, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't read completely. She exists as a name, which people didn't know had written books for quite a long time afterwards. And now, particularly, people are reading her corpus from beginning to end again. And there's some really exciting work going on. And we're like treating her as a serious philosopher. Her work is no more contradictory or wild or weird than so many other philosophers from the early modern period, but they have the benefit of having existed in edited editions. If you pick up a book and it's you know typeset to look like how you would expect something to in the 21st century with marginal notes and a glossary and page references, you're much more able to engage with it than if you're reading page scans online because there is no edited edition. You know, so I think she definitely wasn't seen on the same level as like you know often they've got who she she knew, um, but that doesn't mean that she isn't an intellectual figure we should engage with now. Um, we're coming towards the end of the uh, podcast, Francesca, but I do have one final question for you. Obviously, you've written this um, fantastic book and spent a lot of time reading about Margaret Cavendish. We've spent quite a bit of time discussing her. If you could meet her, what one thing would you most like to ask her? Oh, that's such a good question. So I have to confess, I did start to dream of her. Um, so I feel like I have. <laughs> um, and in my dreams, we had really deranged conversations. Um, I think I asked her if she liked Lana Del Rey. Um, <laughs> but I think I would really have to ask her probably about some of the parts of her philosophy which are harder to understand now so I'd really want to talk to her about that 
or she was always famed for being amazing, having an amazing fashion sense. And I'd really want to talk to her about um, how it felt to choose one of Samuel Peep's stories of her is like uh, following her throughout London, trying to look at her. And she's being mobbed by groups of children who are chasing after her. And I'd want to ask her how that felt. Yeah, that's a fantastic response. In your dream, what did she say when you asked her about Lana Del Rey? She told me she was a fan, yeah. <laughs> and then I made a playlist. <laughs> But I have to admit, maybe I lost the plot by that point. <laughs> Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Francesca. If people want to find out more about you, more about where they can buy the book, where should they go to find out more about you and where can they buy the book? Yeah, um, either Google Pure Wet, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish or my name, Francesca Peacock, and it should come up um, or I'm way too addicted to Twitter. So I'll probably be on that. Fantastic. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. Thank you.